Welcome to the Upland Nation Podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. So glad you could join me. This show is all about you. Yeah, you are the question askers this time around, and I'm going to do my best to answer, oh, probably uh, six or seven good questions on everything from dog training to buying a new pup to um, where to go and why to do it. I do promise that I will not talk at all about shooting tips because, well, if you've seen the TV show Wing Shooting USA, enough said. We'll also be talking about some wild quail hunting I did recently. I'll have a new Upland Nation puzzler question and a prize, so get ready for that. And it's all brought to you by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food, and our newest sponsor, Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School. Well, how you been? What's up? And uh, are you getting out and doing it? Over here, very busy time. Been hitting the fields and the hills every week in one way or another. Uh, the last one, uh, Flick put in 50 miles in three, d- three days. I didn't go quite that far, but uh, still had a great time with some good friends. I'll be talking about those hunts in upcoming podcasts. In the meanwhile, one that... Uh, was a lesson in a lot of ways, and I thought I'd share it for that reason. You know, it's not all about a full bag. In fact, in that last case, I'm. Uh, it's it's all about being skunked. You know, what do you learn when you're out there doing that? I was in a general area that I love to visit, go there a lot, and enjoy the heck out of it, uh, and have been going there for almost 30 years, and you've probably heard me talk about it before, but Uh, Pursuant to my overall goal for the last few years, I'm trying to hunt places I've never hunted before. And so I did a little bit of scouting, uh, electronic scouting, and then I was out driving around a lot and talking with people and looking at stuff and um, had a lot of fun in that regard. But uh, everywhere I went, uh, we faced the same situation. There's uh, a vicious drought underway right now. So there's little in the way of um, extra cover and extra feed. Uh, The bug populations in the springtime are low as a result of the lack of moisture, and that means the chick uh, survival rate is probably lower, although never asked any biologists about that. So uh, Flick and I were out. I decided it was time to, you know, focus a little bit maybe on wild valley quail for for the weekend, and... uh, saved my knees, which are still um, a work in progress. But ironically, uh, even in a drought situation, what struck me first about these places, which are just basically desert with lots of hills, sagebrush, juniper on the tops, uh, cheatgrass, uh, bunch grass for the cows, lots of lava rocks, uh, columnar basalt in places, stunning vistas, and uh, views that go on for state after state. You can stand in places and see three states at the same time. So we're, uh, we're working all of that, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Uh, and the first thing that's wrong with it is water, water everywhere. Yeah, every stream had water in it, not just a trickle. Most of the streams were gushing 
And at the end of the, the last day of the hunt, I got to share some time in the field with my friend uh, David, who's a, a wrangler and a ranch manager out there. And he said, yeah, that's the snow we got last week, way on top, melting. Ah, not a good thing. Well, suffice it to say, we were hunting hard, Flick and I, for most of that weekend, and uh, uh, didn't find a thing. Nowhere did we find anything. Nowhere. So I broke my own rule, and we went to a spot where I can almost always find valley quail. And for the first half of that walk, nothing. But typically, if they're not there, they're there. Up that draw to the right, it's a little bit north and a little bit west. And, you know, it doesn't look any different than any of the others. But it seems like every time we go up, it, we find a, at least one covey. And sure enough, Flick is up there three, 400 yards and slams a point. I only know that because my collar tells me that. He um, is still on point when the first bunch of birds strafe me. Yeah, I, I had to duck. Some of them were coming in so low, they didn't know I was there. And it was so far up that draw that uh, they thought they were coming in a safe direction. Well, I, I took a wild shot and missed, of course. And uh, then the second bunch came over and I took a, another wild shot. About that time, Flick came up to visit with me and uh, probably rightfully could have pissed on my boot after that, thanks to the bad shooting. We uh, hunted those singles out, and I missed every one of those as well. I learned two things uh, while missing four times total. First off, uh, the idea of shooting instinctively is still a great idea, but uh, the idea of having to close my left eye to shoot correctly, that doesn't happen in the heat of battle. And uh, I'm going to um, go back to the tape on the left frame of the shooting glasses and see how that works instead. I'll keep you posted on it. And um, hopefully Flick will get a few retrieves in coming weeks and everybody will be more happy. I know that I left that area humbled, but also grateful for the friendships I made down there and the chance I got to spend with some, some high quality people in their own environment and pitching a little bit here and there, moving a couple cows back and forth and had a great time. I hope you did too last weekend. If you want to share some of that, I'm doing my best to ask every week on Mondays on the social media how your hunt went. Maybe you can share some photos, that sort of thing. Love to talk about those about every other podcast. And of course, that's where these questions came from. They'll be right up after this quick break. Sage and Breaker Gun Care products, as you well know, are crafted at the highest caliber. Don't forget to sign up for the mailing list at sageandbreaker.com. You'll get first notice of any of the very rare sales and all of the new products that Fred Bohm has to offer at sageandbreaker.com. And my pointer shotguns are on the way. Yeah, legacysports.com is where you learn all about the pointer brand of shotguns. The newest, coolest aspect of this shotgun line is the Cerakoting on their Acriuses and on their semi-automatics as well. 
if you want to take a look at something just a little bit different for the field, you can get them in uh, olive drab, gray, and bronze. Pretty cool. Learn more about pointer shotguns at LegacySports.com. A lot of these questions are coming to me via my uh, Upland Nation Insights newsletter every week. If you're not on that mailing list, uh, please sign up at findbirdhuntingspots.com. First question comes from Stephen Altizer, and this is a good one. He says, I had an experience hunting yesterday, found a rare rooster in our state, dropped its leg, sent it down after it flew a little ways. I thought I marked it pretty well, but when my English, no, when my Epanil Breton and I got over to where I thought it went down, we couldn't find it. Spent the rest of the day looking for it. I hate losing a bird. Yeah, um, so he asks if I have any tips on practicing marking and then training a dog to hunt dead. So kind of a two-part question. And I lived that uh, Sunday, or was it Monday? Anyway, in a tall field of uh, Great Basin Wild Rye with a good friend of mine who uh, popped a, a ringneck, the rare ringneck in that patch of ground and uh, it went down and I thought I had a pretty good line on it. It wasn't my bird, but I still like the help in that regard. Uh, learned the hard way that neither of us had as good a mark on it as uh, we thought we did. But uh, here are some things that I try to do. And a lot of this stuff, I, you know, I, I learned about marking from rising trout. <laughs> yeah, when you're fly fishing, you finally see a rise that's one of the best times to make a mark somewhere, literally, figuratively, uh, if you can, on the ground. But I'll get to that in a minute. The first thing is I seldom shoot doubles anymore, uh, mainly because I'm lucky enough to hit one, but also because it really does hinder your marking a down bird. And, I, you know, I'm presuming a lot, of, you know, most of the birds I hit, and maybe you're the same, uh, don't go down as hard as we think they would. So you want to get on them pretty quickly. So... My top priority is keeping my eyes riveted to the spot where the bird probably touched down. The one, you know, once I've done that, the next thing I do is I look for things to the right and left and beyond that I might be able to reference. It might be a T-post in a fence. It might be a, a power pole if there is such a thing. It might be a, a well, in one case, a, a couple weeks ago on a quail hunt, it was the one willow that had a bird nest in it, the no leaves, but a bird nest. So I, uh, that was beyond where I thought the uh, quail had fallen down. So I walked straight for it, never took my eyes off the spot, hopefully bringing the dog in at the same time, but not hunting too hard for the dog quite yet. Then once I'm in the general area, mark it somehow and I'll lob a hat or something in the general area, then I'll send the dog in. Uh, hopefully the dog has been trained to hunt dead, but uh, most good dogs with a decent nose, if they're in the general area, will probably be able to find those birds if they are there. If they're not, well, then it's a tracking situation. That requires a lot more training. But the key to all of this is do not take your eyes off the spot you think the bird fell. Then mark it somehow with something unique and distinctive 
on one side or the other or beyond it and then walk right to it. All right, so that's the first half of the question. The second half of the question is, all right, how do you get a dog to hunt dead? Well, if you're a NAVDA member, you know what the duck search is all about. And uh, that's one good way to do it. And there's no reason you can't train for that on dry ground as well. Hey, I live in the desert. Most of my retrieves, uh, whether they're marked or unmarked, are going to be on dry ground. Pretty easy to start this. And the way to start it, at least most of the folks who I know who train for it and help others in that regard, is to... Uh, first off, have birds, ideally even some live birds. They can be pigeons, they can be training quail, it doesn't matter. You want your dog restrained, and you want some real brushy ground somewhere in the vicinity. You want your dog to see that bird at first. Then you want to go out and you want to hide it somewhere in that high brush. The dog is putting two and two together already. Then you're going to just cut them loose with a command, whatever you use. Hunt dead, dead bird, bird in here, whatever it is. It all works. The key is keep it consistent. That dog saw you and saw that bird and is pretty darn motivated. All right, after that, then it's a matter of distance and less motivation. So maybe you're sending him for dead birds, or maybe he's not seeing the bird first, but if he puts two and two together and realizes that there is a dead bird out there somewhere, when you tell him there's a dead bird out there, he's going to maintain a pretty high level of drive. Use several birds early on so that when he's out there and he's working hard for you, he succeeds. You know, immediate gratification is what dogs are all about. Then just stretch the distance, stretch the severity of the cover, and um, hopefully, after a few dozen repetitions, maybe that dog will put the whole thing together and deliver those birds to hand. And once he does, don't take it right away, just like any other kind of retrieving. The one reward he gets for this whole situation is a bird in his mouth. Let him savor it for a while. Great question. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Monty Stevens asks, seems like most bird dog trainers here in north central Florida closed up shop a long time ago due to dwindling quail populations. So finding a local trainer is just not going to happen. So the question is, if someone who is good with dogs and has time, is it feasible for them to train their own dog and then Monty says, I've heard some breeds are easier to train than others. He's thinking about a Brittany. What do I think? Well, number one, I think that the real key to bonding with your dog is training it yourself. Some people uh, don't have the time, don't have the abilities, whatever it is. But most of us, I think, are way better off building a relationship with our dog by training it ourselves. Highs and lows, of course. Yeah, and uh, all of those together will create a great relationship between the two of you. Find a good book or a DVD method and go at it. Join a club or a training group. Get a dog that's bred well from hunting lines. Even some of the social media and online relationships you create will be helpful. Others will be not so helpful. And uh, while many Brits are quite trainable... There are other breeds out there that might be just as good for you. And if it's your first bird dog, <laughs> just finished an article for Gundog Magazine on this topic. 
If it's your first bird dog, you might be better off working with a flushing breed. Trust a lab to do just about everything you want except point. And you can kind of, you know, use that dog as your, you know, your first bird dog experience. Learn all the other stuff and then maybe you're ready to, you know, invest the training time and effort in a pointing breed next. Good luck on that one. Joseph Burrich asks, I have an eight-month-old English setter pup with limited registration, blah, blah. I'm thinking about having him neutered. Any thoughts on neutering? Uh, and does it affect a dog's desire to hunt or their ability to do so? Well, uh, thanks a lot, Joseph. That is a, a, a recurring question. I don't know that I've ever expressed my, my feelings on that, and I've done some pretty deep research on this over the years for a bunch of reasons. Uh, sometimes you, you don't have a choice. For example, uh, Flick um, was offered to me, but only under the condition that he remains intact because he's basically the B-team stud dog for my friend Jeff Funky at Three Devils Kennels. Unfortunately for Flick, he hasn't had the chance to um, deliver on that promise yet, but uh, he's still intact at four and a half years old. I don't think neutering a dog changes their drive per se. It does change some things uh, physiologically. I'll get to those in a minute. Um, but you know, of the five wire hairs I've had, all males, all of them have been neutered except for Flick after a reasonable amount of time. And that's the physiological aspect I'm talking about there. There's a lot of debate on this. If you go to a humane society or a lot of veterinarians, they'll want you to neuter really early in a dog's life, spay the same way. And to a great degree, some of the risks are the same. You do that too early and all the hormones produced by those really important organs, the testes or the ovaries, those hormones are not circulating in your dog's body and helping to grow and build muscles and bones and even cognitive abilities. All of those things are affected by the hormonal balance in a dog. So you don't want to basically, in effect, cut off the pancreas from a dog's circulatory system and take the risk, the health risks that come from that. And there are a bun of, bunch of them if you want to do your research. Everything from odd uh, confirmation to cancers. So wait until at least 18 months old, if you can, to um, neuter or spay. And uh, if you can, wait a little longer and uh, maybe uh, your dog will um, settle down. You know, neutering is not the way to settle a dog. That comes with, what the heck? What was that? Oh, sorry about that, everybody. I forgot to turn off my speaker there. Anyway, uh, a dog that, the longer a dog is left intact, the longer that dog will have to build strong bones and muscles and all the other aspects of a body that are important to you and to them if you expect them to perform at their peaks. One more before the break. We still got the Upland Nation puzzler and a prize coming up and a few other things as well. And more of your questions from Jake and Stephen Robbins and Tracy Travis Dixon. So stick around after this question from Brett Bowser. He says, my pup got two seeds in his eye today. I think one may have scratched his eye. 
Well, Brett, I uh, hope you didn't, you know, I got to you as quick as I could online, but uh, if anybody else runs into the same problem, a few things. Number one, if you carry around antibiotic for a dog's eyes, yes, and it's different than the kind you use for everything else, well, be careful about that because if a dog has a scratched cornea, you do not want to put any antibiotic in there. It just aggravates the situation. It uh, uh, it uh, slows down the healing process, and you need to get your dog to a veterinarian who can do a dye test. If you don't know what that is, it's not a big deal. It's pretty easy to do, but it requires some drops and then a little bit of a, a oh, I used to call it uh, litmus paper, but uh, you don't want to put anything in that eye until then. But the the bigger question here is really about taking care of your dog's eyes after a hunt in general and that's one thing that i'm pretty big on it starts at home training your dog to accept two things one a q-tip that can pull out most of the crap that gets stuck in the generally in the lower eyelid or the corner of their eye seeds and grit and pieces of sand and all of that so work on that with your dog. It's a long process, but uh, most dogs will accept that. And the other one is uh, eye wash. I carry a little squirt bottle with distilled water in it. And for all the crap that I can't get out with a Q-tip, then I can wash it out if my dog has been trained to accept that. It's a training question, just like so many other aspects of uh, hunting that you might think were training questions but show your dog how to do that the right way plenty of treats the first several times you do it do it at home first my best advice might be do it on the tailgate or something else where your dog is a little bit higher and off the ground that'll help calm them down a little bit and it also gets everything up at your eye level as well so you can see better you can administer these remedies a little bit easier and your dog is happier and you are happier. Good luck. All right, and uh, before we get to the Upland Nation puzzler, a prize and more of your questions, two messages for you. The first from happyjackinc.com, happyjackinc.com. The Exum family, third generation now running the organization that can probably provide you with a product that will save you a trip to the veterinarian once in a while. If your dog's slowing down, it's probably arthritis. Yeah, one in seven dogs is suffering right now. And believe it or not, dogs as young as one year old can develop arthritis pain. They won't show it as pain. They'll just slow down, be a little slower to come out of the box, a little slower to get out through the door or to actually move in the field. So take a look at happyjackinc.com and their Flex Enhance Plus. It has glucosamine and creatine, the natural building blocks that help reverse damage caused over time to joints, bones, and cartilage. Improve your pet's flexibility and mobility and reduce his or her pain. Ian, using the heck out of my new Roughland Kennel. Learn more at rufflandkennels.com, and that's R-U-F-F, just like Flick would spell it. In addition to the first, uh, yeah, they pioneered roto-molded dog kennels. In addition to their great kennels in various sizes and colors, they have a ton of accessories that might be of use to you 
on any kennel. From fans to dog bowls, you name it, they've got it. lots of great storage options. Their doors are um, incredible because you can open them in both directions. My new kennel has door on one end and on one side, so no matter how I've configured the truck, Flick can get in and out, even when he doesn't want to. Learn more about them at RoughlandKennels.com. Welcome back the Upland Nation. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Uh, appreciate all the great questions I've been getting from everybody over the last few months, and I've kind of cherry-picked some of the best ones. This one comes from Jake Lawrence. He says he's already a canine handler, competes in dog sports, protection, tracking, and obedience, uh, breeds those dogs as well. Just got into hunting, being a dog guy already, have fallen in love with the Uplands, mostly looking at uh German shorthair or an English setter, also interested in a started dog or a trained dog. But he says, and, and hey, maybe you've re you can relate to this. I, I got a couple questions uh, that were kind of sort of like this. There's a lot of people that sell dogs like this, but rarely are they great quality. If they were, they'd either have sold those dogs already or they'd be keeping them for themselves. Well, you know, that's true to a great degree, Jake, but not always. I just uh, spent some time with a, a guy whose opinion I value who said his his breeder always has a couple more that he trains up, at least to the started level, knowing that at some point he'll get his money's worth out of them. And some people do need them. So he's responding, in effect, to the market there. So Jake asks if there's... Uh, uh, anybody trustworthy out there to find started or finished dogs. And uh, yes, there are. There's a whole bunch of places. If you've got a breed club that you like and you're really set on German shorthairs or English setters, join that breed club, definitely, and, um, and just start getting active on the local level. NAVDA is another good place to start, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. All of those organizations have local chapters of one sort or another, and all of them have training days of one sort or another. Get involved in the club, even before you buy or, or breed a dog, for example. Uh, ask around. Check the database for those clubs. A lot of times there are test results in there. There's also listings of uh, recommended breeders uh, in many cases. So those are the first things I would do is uh, I would I would look to the folks who do this on a regular basis. Uh, you'll find a lot of great suggestions there. Again, social media can be a help and a hindrance. There's a lot of bluster out there and there's a lot of funny things happening. So I'd look at the stuff that's on the ground. Check references, check pedigrees, make sure that when you're ready to buy a dog that you see that dog work in the field. If you can, see the parents work as well. And Jake, I got one more thing for you. God love you. You know, if you're doing a lot of work in the protection world, obedience world, and that sort of thing. But the bird dog world is a little different, and I know you're looking at a pointing breed, but you might want to consider for your first bird dog something that doesn't require that extra effort of pointing. Uh, 
uh, and getting a dog steady to point. If you're going to stay in that those other dog sports, your time is going to be rather limited. And I'm, I'm just being realistic here. Jake, you might be better off getting a flushing breed for your first bird dog. Sound like a broken record for you old timers out there who know what records are. But it's true. Most of the time, a first bird dog ought to probably be a flushing dog. Now, do as I say, not as I do. I started with a wire hair, but I won't bore you with that story yet again. Thanks for the question, Jake, and good luck. Welcome to the club. Steve Robbins asks questions that I wish I, I wish I had a good answer for you, Stephen. Uh, do you know of a published or downloadable list of emergency veterinarians for those of us that travel with our dogs? And then there's a really sad story I won't share with anybody. Uh, Stephen, no, there is no such thing that I know of. And even if there was, it probably would be out of date. So where I go, I just do my homework in advance. And you've seen this before. If you read any serious stories by smart people about taking care of their hunting dogs, the first thing they're going to tell you is call ahead, make sure you know where all the veterinarians are in the area and what their hours are and get their emergency numbers just in case. Yeah, I'm sorry about that um, situation you went through. It's tragic. You're not the first to share a story like that. Everybody out there, just take it from me and take it from Stephen Robbins. Do know where those veterinarians are before you need them. Travis Dick Dixon asks, this is a kind of silly question. There is no such thing. Believe me, I've asked a million of those over the years. How many times can you use a frozen bird for training before you should throw it away? <laughs> well, I use the heck out of them. Uh, they're probably a little bit disgusting by the time I decide we're done with them in the training field. But I do use a lot of them. And hey, great tip from Evan Graham. Excellent trainer, by the way. Evan gave me this tip years ago, and I still use it to this day. When you're storing frozen birds in the freezer, well, first off, clear plastic Ziploc bags it will probably make your spouse a little bit upset. But the best way to store them is in brown paper bags. Enough air gets in there and circulates, so when you put a slimy, spit it up, dead bird back into the freezer. It dries out, in effect, a lot faster that way. But anyway, I do use frozen birds over and over and over again. Sometimes I do thaw them out. Sometimes I don't. It depends what I'm working on. You can refreeze them periodically as well. So however you're using them, I the, the indicator for me is when the skin is broken, and it's more like meat than a bird anymore, then it's time to call it on that particular bird. Now, even then, it doesn't go to waste with me. I live out on a national forest, so once we're done with that bird, it goes back to the forest to feed the coyotes. I know some of you would probably cringe to hear that I am feeding the coyotes out here, but they're having a rough enough time, and they've been good to me so far, knock wood. So good luck and yeah, get as many as you can and store them in a brown paper bag. Great questions, by the way. Thank you all. And, uh, you know, I'll do this periodically. Uh, everybody who is asking those questions, whether it's social media, emails, or like I said, responding to my uh, Upland Nation Insights newsletter. Bobby Dolan asks, 
I've trained several labs for retrieving. How much difference is there in training a pointer? Well, a lot, Bobby. But if you are experienced at training flushing breeds and retrievers, then you're two-thirds of the way there. The biggest challenge most of us face most of the time with pointing breeds is that last push up the last few steps to the top of the hill and getting that dog steady to wing, shot, and fall. Now, we can argue all day about whether you want them that steady or you want them steady to wing and shot or whatever it is. Your definition of a finished dog is as good as mine. If it works for you, more power to you. But that's the hard part. Most pointing dogs from good stock will point a bird. That's where the challenge begins. What you need to do then is extend that point so that that dog will hold that point when the Hungarian partridge covey is 300 yards away up the hill. You want that dog to hold as long as you feel you'll ever need that dog to hold to get up and get a good, safe, accurate shot. It's complicated, but it starts with obedience and it, and it ends with repetition after repetition after repetition. So maybe the hardest part of training a pointer versus a flusher is the number of birds you're going to use. They could be your birds, they could be a hunting preserve's birds, but it's dozens and dozens to hundreds of bird contacts to get a dog steady to the degree you want it to be steady. Very doable, but it is a step over and above flushing and retrieving. Don sure asked a question I can relate to. Yes. When on a week-long pheasant hunt, what is a good rule of thumb on pacing your dog in the field for time? Well, it's a wide open question, Don, and maybe I'm not interpreting it the way you wanted it, but here's my slap at that question. It depends. Pheasant hunts are generally on more level ground. It's a little bit more um, uh, yeah, amenable to uh, pad life, if you will, on a dog's feet. Uh, not near as many rocks or other things that are going to booger up a dog's feet. So all of those things come into it. But uh, my dogs will run 10 to 30 miles a day on a chucker hunt. And that's on rough terrain, a lot of hills, a lot of rocks. We can do that three, four, five, six. We've done as many as seven hours a day. But most of the time on a pheasant hunt, uh, you're probably okay. You do three, four day, three to four hours a day, you're probably having a big day. Depending on the condition of your dog, you might need to rest him the next day. Uh, generally, if we're doing a serious chucker hunt, the third day is at least a half rest day for my dog. Yeah especially if you're going for a whole week long pheasant hunt and you're a one dog person, you do want to be cognizant of that. You can watch your dog in the field. You can figure out a lot of that. You do a good careful exam at the end of the day, check their feet, make sure the pads aren't torn or cut. Rest your dog when he needs rest, feed him the right way so that he's got enough energy the next day. Maybe do some supplementing in the field with a high fat, low volume snack of one sort or another you'll probably do fine if your dog starts that hunt in good condition. Kevin Wood 
says, some people tell me I'm doing my dog's training wrong by using a tennis ball and a rag and covering with duck pheasant and quail scent. Am I doing it wrong? Kevin, all practice is good practice. Depends what you do afterwards with the tennis ball and the rag, but it depends what you're trying to accomplish. If you want that dog to start searching and then finding real birds, eventually you have to go to real birds. If you're uh, uh, training a retriever and you don't mention it here, uh, then uh, dead birds are probably all you need there. But if you're training a dog that you want to, to flush aggressively or to find and point birds, then you need the real deal at some point. And you need a lot of them. I know, again, broken record, yada, yada, yada. But it's true. Get a good training book. From Evan Graham, Rick and Ronnie Smith, they all have DVDs. Uh, they're all worth looking at. Yeah, um, at some point, you need the real deal. Barry Gold asks a simple question with a complicated answer. What chokes do you use for pheasant in a 20-gauge over and under? When I'm hunting pheasants, um, I only take close shots. I'm not that good, and uh, we need a lot of stopping power on those big birds, as I learned again. Monday. So I'm going to shoot um, sixes early in the season, fives or fours later in the season, and my chokes are improved cylinder on the bottom and modified on the top. That works for anything under 30, 35 yards. If I shoot a 35-yard bird, that's a long bird for me. I'm still learning about lead. Hope that helps, Barry. And uh, Michael Milliken's question. I see English pointers short hairs, wire hairs, vishlas, and others. Over the years, has one breed been or seemed to be a leader in upland hunting? Yes and no. I mean, if you're talking numbers, absolutely. Uh, it's the short hair world. Uh, you go down south to Texas or even to the quail plantations down there in the southeast. It might be pointers. It could actually be setters in many cases. I just hunted with three different setters. Um, not on quail. Uh, but they're all great, depending on what you're looking for. But of the popular breeds, the tops are probably short hairs. Labradors are right up there, too. You know, every year I ask you all, and you tell me that short hairs and labs are your two favorite breeds. Then everything else falls in below that. Poodle pointers are coming on strong for a bunch of reasons, and we have some great breeders and some excellent lines now. So the gene pool is nice and deep. But really, it depends on a couple things. And the first is, what do you like about the dogs? What are their typical attributes, range, coat, personality? And then go from there. My only advice in that regard would be pick a breed that has a good, deep gene pool of hunting lines. And then this one comes off from so many people so many times, let's just slap it right upside the head one more time. How many wire hairs do you put on the ground at the same time? I am just beyond using more than one. I love hunting with two dogs, and usually I'll hunt with two dogs if somebody else is handling the other one. Had some great times with that. Thank you, Felton and Mark, just recently. But I'm down to one now, and I like it a lot for a bunch of reasons. It allows me to focus on one dog and appreciate their dog work really well. You know, they're magical critters, and 
every step they take is dazzling to me, especially when I can see it all. If I'm dividing my attention, I can't see it all. Yeah, I may miss a few birds, but that doesn't matter to me anymore. I'd rather watch the dogs anyhow, and I can focus on Flick right now and the incredible work, which I'll tell you about down the road as well. I've run two dogs in the past. I've run three dogs periodically, uh, but it's just too much for me to keep track of and enjoy the way of hunting that I enjoy. Now, if what you mean is how many dogs are in my string and why do I use them the way I do, you got two dogs, one's in the box staying fresh. Halfway through today, you swap out your dogs and you got another dog that will be going at 110% while your first dog is resting up for the next day. Great strategy, allows you to do what I like to do, and also to have a fresh dog on the ground at all times. Well, those were fun. I've got a couple more things to cover, including a new Upland Nation Puzzler Prize and question for you. Coming up in just a moment, so stick around. And we are brought to you in part by Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Go to the website, D-R-T-I-M-S, read Dr. Tim Hunt's ingredient lists. The guy does his homework, and so should you. These are trying times with supply chain issues. Some dog food manufacturers are making compromises. Dr. Tim's never does. Learn all about where his ingredients come from and why they are in each formulation. D-R-T-I-M-S. Free delivery, 30% discount on your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION. And if you're looking for a hard-to-find shotgun and having no luck, consider Mid-Valley Clays. They've got a great selection of hard-to-find shotguns from all the major manufacturers. Now, here's the key. Dave Fiedler, the owner at Mid-Valley Clays, also has a pretty strong relationship with most of these companies. So, if you don't find it on the website, he might be able to get you one anyway with a few phone calls. If you're looking for some help searching for your dream gun, go to midvalleyclays.com. Ask for Dave. He'll be glad to help you. Welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for all those questions, by the way. Keep them coming. I love answering those. It's the old teacher in me, I guess. Yeah, I promised you the Upland Nation puzzler and a prize. Well, for the month of December, the potential prize for anybody who answers the questions correctly is one of my own signature series over-the-shoulder Jaeger leads in camo. It's got a slip lead, so um, if you're a retriever guy or, well, it doesn't matter. It's really easy to carry on your shoulder, take the dog out of that slip lead when you need to, and uh, keep it handy the whole time. Okay, with that as the prize, you answer at the Facebook pages with a private message. Any of the Facebook pages will do. Here's the question. Where on a dog is the carpal pad? C-A-R-P-A-L. Where on the dog is the carpal pad? And by the way, 
when you're checking your dog's feet, make sure you check the carpal pad as well. Good luck. Somebody's going to win that Jaeger lead from my own Scott Linden Signature Series. And that part of the show is brought to you by FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. Some new material out there, a couple summaries of a couple recent hunts with some lessons for everybody in there. It's all at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. Thank you again for all those great questions. Thank you all for listening. Please tell your friends we grow one listener at a time. If you'll do me the kind favor of leaving a five-star review, if you think I deserve it, wherever you get your podcasts, all the better. Thank you so much to all of our sponsors and for all the folks who ask questions. I'll leave you with this, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, We all have to do that once in a while. Franklin Jones says, anybody who doesn't know what soap tastes like never washed a dog. Until we meet again right here, I'll see you in the field. Thanks for listening.